1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ who was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God and in chapter 2 <clears throat> chapter 2 is a little different emphasis verse 21 21 for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth while being reviled he did not revile in return while suffering he uttered no, uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed then I want you to turn back for a text Genesis chapter 22 verse 7 now many of you have got children little children and we've had four we have ten grandchildren three of whom believe it or not are American because one of our daughters married an American so we have a foot in each camp <laughs> and little children little boys especially ask strange questions hands up who of your parents have had your children ask you strange questions yes mummy where did I come from <laughs> it's a hard one isn't it or daddy what's that thing in that field it's a cow daddy why is it a cow <laughs> well now so on we won't go into any more <laughs> So we expect little boys to ask questions and here's one verse 7 and Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said my father and he said here am I my son he said behold the fire the wood but where is the lamb for the burnt offering embarrassing question <laughs> since he's going to be the lamb <laughs> he doesn't know this but Abraham does and the wise answer comes Abraham said God will himself or for himself provide the lamb for the burnt offering my son and God did now the burnt offering if you know anything about offerings was the most ancient of the offerings it was the offering that Cain and Abel came and offered just after the fall in Eden and uh, it became the predominant offering in Israel because it was an offering made by fire unto the Lord that was why it was called a burnt offering 
and the, it symbolized the total giving of the offerer of himself to God. But what we all ought to do is give ourselves wholly to God and what they ought to have done and couldn't do and often didn't do, the offering did. The offering was offered totally to God, it was totally burnt on the altar. And there were three things that were needed for a burnt offering. There was wood to burn, there was obviously fire, and there must be a sacrifice, which could be a bullock or a goat, often was a lamb, because the lamb is the most common animal. And here Abraham is going in obedience to God to offer this burnt offering on Mount Moriah, and he has the, three, the two things, the wood, all neatly stacked and piled on the donkey's back, and he has the fire, maybe a box of matches or an electric uh, tinder in his pocket. Now, I don't know what he has, but he has the fire somehow. Um, uh, maybe a flaming torch or smoldering thing to light the fire. But he doesn't have a lamb. So, Isaac's question. Obvious. Now, I'm going to do a very unexegetical thing, which was never taught at Spurgeon's College. And by the way, that... Um, you can never tell him much. didn't originate with Spurgeon. The original was an American version. You can always tell a Texan, but you can't tell him much. It's Texan. You can't tell him much. So, any Texans here, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, we pinched it, you see. We stole it and said that Spurgeon's. But I hope it isn't true, because you can tell us very much. And I praise the Lord for all I've gained from this service this morning, and the first one and the second, because... It's done me a great deal of good. But I'm going to do an unexegetical thing. I'm going to put it in God's mouth and say, this is God's question. It's God's question. He's always asking this question, where is the lamb? Because it was God's quest. He was looking for a lamb. He was looking for one who was going to come in the fullness of time and be his lamb to give his life as a burnt offering for the sin of the world. And that was to be Jesus. Now, throughout the Bible, you'll find there are two great creatures. One is a serpent and the other is a lamb. And the serpent was there in Eden, tempting. And the lamb was also there, outside Eden, I suppose, when Abel offered his lamb. And all the way through, you'll find in the scripture there is the serpent dragon that's the symbol of evil, the symbol of the devil. And he's there at the end in the book of the Revelation, that great old serpent and dragon, the devil, in the final great conflict. And there's the lamb all the way through the scriptures too. He's there in Isaiah, and he's there in John's Gospel, and he's there in the epistles, and he's there 21 times in the book of the Revelation, Jesus is called of the lamb. And ultimately there's a great conflict between the serpent, the dragon and the lamb, and the lamb overcomes. Hallelujah. He does overcome. Now, in a, in a burnt offering, there were three qualities a lamb had to have in order to be valid for the offering. The first was purity. You must offer a lamb without blemish and without any defect. It mustn't have a broken leg or a spotted skin. It must be a perfect lamb. And so the lambs were very carefully selected and bred for the offerings. 
Secondly, a lamb was marked by humility. We sang about that at the very beginning, humble thyself. A lamb was a humble animal. It wasn't like uh, a pig or some other animal that kicked and screamed and made a great fuss if it was to go to the slaughterhouse. A lamb went meekly, didn't make any noise, went with a bowed head. And Isaiah takes that up in Isaiah 53, remember, he is led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. So a lamb was humble. And thirdly, of course, it was sacrificial. It was, it was designed for sacrifice. We still breed sheep to be killed, to be eaten. And uh, they would consume much of the flesh of the sacrifices. But first they would go to the altar. And so God saw these three qualities and he said, where is the lamb? Because these were the three great qualities that God was going to see in his son, Jesus, who came to this world to be our saviour. He was going to see one who was without spot and blemish, who was meek and lowly of heart, and who was going to be the great sacrifice for the sin of the world. And we know this because in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, if you want to jot it down or take note of it, in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, we are told about Jesus that he was an offering. He gave himself on the cross, an offering for a sweet smell to God. What does it mean, a sweet smell? It meant there was something so beautiful and perfect about the offering of Jesus on the cross so beautiful about his whole life that was pleasing to God that at the beginning of his life God could say this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and at the end of his life he could say this is my beloved son in whose sacrifice I'm so well pleased that I raise him from the dead and exalt him to glory he was a sweet smell to God but that little phrase an offering of a sweet smell is plucked out of the Old Testament it's taken from Leviticus chapter 1 verse 9 and you know the first three chapters of Leviticus are about the offerings and in chapter 1 it's about the burnt offering and it says that the burnt offering of a lamb or a sheep or whatever it was on the altar was a sweet savour of an offering to God now I can't think for a moment that the Lord God Almighty maker of heaven and earth is interested in, in the smell of roast mutton although you and I may be. But what does it mean that the offerings of lambs on the altars were a sweet savour? It meant that there was something so pleasing to God about that sacrifice that it was like a lovely savour to God because it spoke of Christ. And every lamb, every sacrifice spoke of Christ. That's why they were valid. There was no value in them themselves. Uh, An animal couldn't take away sin, but Jesus would. And the animal was all that the Jews had that pointed them to Christ, even though they knew it not sometimes. But God accepted the sacrifice of the Lamb because it was the type of Christ. So in every sacrifice, Jesus saw his Son. And so he said, where is the Lamb? He was looking for the sacrifice. But not only that, that God was also looking for the spirit of the Lamb. 
because that was the power of the sacrifice of Jesus. It was valid because he was the Lamb before he ever died on the cross. He was the Lamb, it says, from the foundation of the world. He was the Lamb in Bethlehem. He was the Lamb in Jordan when he was baptized. He was the Lamb all through his life. If he hadn't been the Lamb in disposition, he would have called it a day long before Calvary. And he went to Calvary because he was the Lamb. He had the spirit of the Lamb. He had that meekness, that purity, that sacrificial spirit in his heart. And in the Old Testament, wherever God saw anything that was a a, a forerunner, a picture of the spirit of Jesus that pleased him. Not only on the altar of, of animals, but in the hearts of people. So when he looked at Moses and he saw the meekness in the, in the heart of that powerful man who could uh, kill Egyptians and smite rocks and, you know, and, and really give vent to his powerful temper when he saw the meekness and he was the meekest man on the face of the earth when he saw that he saw the spirit of the Lamb. And that's why he loved Moses and talked with him. God can't talk with the proud and the lofty. He talks with the meek and the lowly. And he talked with Moses because he had the spirit of the Lamb. And before that he saw it in the faith of Abraham who was so obedient to God. And he saw it in the, in the, in the brokenness of David. I spoke about that last time at the conference. That David was always broken in every circumstance of his life. He never resented, he never got his own back. And God said, you're a man after my own heart. You've got the spirit of the Lamb. He told him Jeremiah, who was so tender that he wept over the sins of the people, felt his own sin. He saw it in the, in the brokenness of Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, who, 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 who took the blame for the people. We went into that in the first service. By the way, this isn't the same as the first service. There was another message there, so if you want that, get the tape. But he saw it in these people who had the spirit of the Lamb. And today it's the same, that God looks at Calvary. There are no sacrifices that we can offer that compare with Calvary. But God is looking in the hearts of his people for the spirit of the Lamb. And he looks at churches, he looks at Calvary chapels, and he says, where is the Lamb? And he's looking to see what degree Jesus has the supremacy in our life. And there is his purity and his humility and his sacrifice in our hearts. That comes by grace, of course. Now very often he has to say, like, like Isaac said, here is the wood. Plenty of churches have wood. They have wooden seats and sometimes they have wooden people and wooden pastors. But you know, the wood can be very orderly and you can have all your doctrines nice, nicely stacked. Seven, you know, five points of Calvinism if you're a Calvinist or seven points of something else if you're a Calvary Chapelite. You know, but you can have all your doctrines all set out nicely. We believe this, 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 this and you don't fall on anything. But it's dry and it's hard perhaps and it's just wood. There's no life in it. Lots of doctrines can be lifeless. And then because the doctrines are lifeless, the, the church is lifeless. It's wood, wood, wood. But then there are others that get so fed up with the wood, they say, oh, let's bother, not bother with the wood, let's have fire. So they all go for the fire. And they sing hymns like, send the fire, O God, send the fire. And there's all fire. What's that? Enthusiasm. 
and activity and earnestness and gifts that go all astray here, there and everywhere, signs and wonders. We want the fire. Okay. You must have the wood and you must have the fire because you can't have a burnt offering without them. And we must have the doctrines. And we must have the orderliness of, us, of our services, not disorder. We must have the wood and we must have the fire of the fullness of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the enthusiasm and the zeal and the love the Spirit brings. You've got to have that. But they only exist for the Lamb. It is the Lamb who must be central. And the trouble is, often we haven't got the Lamb. I know I haven't got the Lamb. I don't have that spirit of meekness and brokenness and humility and dedication and sacrifice and purity of heart and life that Jesus has. I just haven't got it and I can't produce it. None of us can. But Abraham says God will provide the lamb. So the second thing is this. God's question is where is the lamb? God's answer is I have the lamb. And that was the, the meaning of Jehovah Jireh. That when the, the ram was caught in the thicket and Isaac was set free from the altar and the lamb was killed in his place, Abraham said, I call this place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Now Jehovah Jireh is a, is a phrase that rings around England in certain circles. They sing Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, and everybody, and they're all talking about Jehovah Jireh, and there's this, you know, this, um, this uh, new doctrine of, of, of success, and, you know, God will provide if you've only got the faith to ask. You ask God anything in the name of Jesus, and you'll get it. You want a Rolls Royce or a Cadillac car, you keep asking, get other people to ask, God will give it to you. Big house, big, big income, big job. You ask, prosperity is what God wants for his people. And I've been with my wife for a week in Soweto with a million and a quarter Africans outside Johannesburg and I've seen people living in abject poverty but people full of faith and the Holy Spirit they don't know any prosperity nor behind the Iron Curtain beware of this teaching Jehovah Jireh wasn't given about houses and lands and, and people it was given about the Lamb and the greatest thing that God has given to make us prosperous is He's given us His own Son. God spared not His own Son, but freely gave Him up for us all. And if He adds other things, well, praise His name. He may give you a big house and a car and, and, and a big income and everything else, but He may not. But He has given you the Lamb. And I'd rather have Jesus, as they used to sing, than anything this world can give today. There's no comparison between all that prosperity may bring to you in life compared with Jesus. He's God's greatest gift, all other gifts in one. Abraham said, God will provide the Lamb. And when you know the Lamb of God, you're set free from all that binds you. And you can live in the fullness of all the promises of God. Now Jesus was God's Lamb. He always was. God had him from the start. From before the foundation of the world, he was the Lamb. 
that he through whom all things were made and who holds all things together by the word of his power was in eternity the Lamb. He had in his heart the spirit of the Lamb. And there in glory with the Father he said, I come to do thy will, O God. Thy law is within my heart. And he was orientated toward the cross in time. Have you ever thought of that? And then he was the Lamb on earth. In every situation he was the Lamb. Even in his blazing anger when he drove them out from the temple. Even when he cursed the fig tree. Even in his judgmental uh, talks, he was still at heart the lamb. He said, I am meek and lowly of heart. Learn of me. And then as he went toward the cross, there was brought out in his life all the features of the lamb. When he was reviled, he didn't revile again. When he was threatened, he didn't answer back. When they smote him, he didn't smite back. He went as a lamb to the slaughter. And there on the cross he fulfilled the great prophecies of Isaiah 53 and others. And he was the lamb without spot and without blemish. And he died there as the lamb on your behalf and mine. And you know, I've seen this. Now when I look at Jesus in his person and his life and his work, I see in Jesus all that I ought to be as a creation of God and all that I am not that I am just not like that and that all that I am not and all that I can never be in myself Jesus was for me so I understand something of the burnt offering that the burnt offering was and did what the sinning Jew could not do and be the offering was there in his place. Now what do we do when we're not the lamb? Because none of us are the lamb. You know, I can be a tiger. Oh yes, and I can lash out in all directions. I can be a lion and I can roar. I can be a bear and be very sulky in my den. I can be a serpent and hiss. I can be any of these animals. So can you. But one thing I cannot be, I cannot be the lamb. God says, I've got the lamb. But what do I do when I'm not the lamb? What do I do when I put blame on other people? What do I do when I lose my temper? What do I do when I have a lustful thought or, or, or jealousy or envy or any of these unlamb-like things? What do I do? What do the Israelites do? Oh, Leviticus tells us in chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, and chapter 4, verse 3, those passages in Leviticus, he said, If a man brought an offering to God, he was to bring his sacrifice to the door of the tabernacle or temple but imagine it there were men in Israel and they felt guilty because they hadn't obeyed the, the law of God they'd broken down somewhere they'd sinned and they felt guilty but they wanted to be right with God so there was an easy provision bring a lamb they could even bring a turtle dove if they wanted to if they hadn't got a lamb but bring something living for a sacrifice that was perfect and pure and what did they do? they brought their sacrifice and we're told he, he would bring the lamb to the priest to the great big brazen altar at the door of the tabernacle and then he was to lay his hand on the head of the lamb now that was a significant act because in a sense he was identifying himself with the lamb he was saying this lamb is for me and I am one with the lamb the Hebrew has uh, uh, another little nuance it's this he was, he used to lean his hand 
at the head of the lamp. As though he was to put a little pressure on. As though he was to say, I'm relying on this sacrifice to do for me what I cannot do for myself. That is to confess his sin. Not in a kind of ritualistic way, he's to confess the sin that's caused him to come with the lamb. Whatever it is. And then it says, it, the burnt offering, shall be accepted instead of him. Leviticus chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Beautiful there. It is accepted instead of him. And then as the, as the fire is lit, the, the, the sacrifice goes up in smoke, he is offered to God in the perfection of that lamb. And he's forgiven. And he goes home rejoicing. And that's what the cross is all about. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Have you ever seen that? That Jesus was accepted on the cross instead of you. And that Jesus is still accepted instead of you. And Ephesians chapter 1 says we are accepted in the beloved. And God can no more reject a sinner who repents than he can reject his risen son in glory. Praise God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, and upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Accepted in the well-beloved, says Wesley in one of his hymns, and perfected by love divine, I see the bar to heaven removed, and all thy beauty, Lord, is mine. Well, praise God for that. So he's accepted for me. And so what we're required to do is not to spend our life striving to be like the Lamb or pretending we are the Lamb, pretending I'm perfect and sinless and faultless and always um, refusing to take any blame or admit any sin or ever to repent or saying, well, I'm filled with the Spirit and I belong to this body of people. I'm perfect. No, 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 no. But to admit where we're wrong and live in the light of the Lamb. That means we're willing to admit where we're at fault. Now, I don't find that easy. For many, many years, even when as a minister, the last thing I would ever do would be to admit that I was wrong on anything. But I was a Spurgeon's man, they're never wrong. I was a minister of a great evangelical church, and you don't expect him to be wrong. I've been brought up amongst very biblical Christians and had a fine, wonderful father. I'm not wrong. And claiming anything I could to give me some self-righteousness. But I never admitted wrong because of pride. But I never knew what it was really to repent of anything. Other people must repent, but not me. Praise God. The greatest thing that happened in my life was when God showed me my need to repent of my sins as a Christian and to come whenever necessary and lay my hand upon the head of the Lamb. How do we come? Well, we've got to come personally in our hearts. Not to wrestle and strive with sin. 
and not to live under constant guilt because you're covering it all up but in your heart to just see Jesus die for you and you come and you just lay your sin on his head and you, ex you are accepted in him because that's what he, he wants you to do and not only do it in our hearts but to do it in our homes because that's where our problems arise so often in our marriages and in our families there's a story I tell sometimes of a certain family where there was a father who was rather sort of pious, you know, and uh, one morning he got up in a, in a bad state and he was irritable and bad-tempered and difficult and the wife was the same and all the children were the same. One boy wouldn't get up and another girl didn't want to go to school and, you know, the other one didn't like to dress and when the breakfast came they were all grumbling at the food and everything was at six and seven in that family that morning. And then they used to have a little reading after their breakfast, before the kids went to school. That morning it was Genesis chapter 22. And they each read a verse. And they got and they were going to read from verse 1 through to 8. But when it came to verse 7, it was the father they had to read. And he read, Isaac said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Being the kind of man he was, he stopped and he said, isn't that a significant word? Where is the lamb? Well, he's not been around in this house this morning. That's one thing for sure. <laughs> and he hadn't. But he was, really. But he wasn't in the people. And the father said, yes, that's true, son. I haven't been a lamb. And I want to ask your forgiveness. And they began to pray, and every one of them came and laid their hand on the head of the lamb ask forgiveness what a blessing what a change you do that in your family you'll have a revival in your home husband you need to come to the lamb with your wife parents you need to come to the lamb with your children I remember having a meeting in Visalia in California once and, and there was a, a movement and people came into a into an inquiry room you know afterwards when an appeal was made and and my wife and I went and looked in there and we saw a, a woman there kneeling with three little children and she was crying her eyes out and the children were saying Mommy don't worry, don't worry we, we forgive you, we forgive you <laughs> we forgive you she was just confessing her, her wrong attitudes to the children and they were saying we forgive you, it was beautiful we need that in our family to come around the land and repent together and forgive and be forgiven and we certainly need it in the church because if we just got wood and fire where's the lamb? but where there is repentance in the church one to another where we see I've not been like the lamb I've not had a right attitude to my brother I've been criticizing the minister and the elders I've been unwilling and unsacrificial in my giving. I've been so disobedient. I've not been willing to serve the Lord. Or whatever it may be. And you repent. And you confess it. You share it with your brethren. Revival begins. Let me just sum up and say this. This that I've been saying this morning is the only ground of salvation. If you're laying your hands upon your, your breast and saying, I am okay, then you'll never be saved. 
If you're laying your hands on other people and saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you'll never be saved. But if you come and you lay your hand on Jesus, you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. You died for me. And you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus died for you, a sinner, and that he's raised from the dead and you're trusting him and him alone for salvation. The word of God says, you shall be saved. Hallelujah. You're saved the moment you put your hand upon the head of that lamb. But then you see, it doesn't stop there. It's the only ground of continued fellowship with Jesus and with one another. And it's as you go on and you, you may agree on doctrines and you may, you may even meet in the same place and sing the same hymns, but unless there is this coming together in constant repentance and constant brokenness and constant trust and sharing Jesus, you're only going to have problems. Error arise somehow. I've known what it is, brethren and sisters, to work in team fellowship with a brother for years and years and to think that he and I could never be blown apart. And then a disagreement arises over the gifts of the Spirit. And a cleavage come so that he doesn't trust me anymore. And I don't want to work with him anymore. And we don't know how to resolve the difference because the doctrines have come in of the gifts of the Spirit and separated us. And the Lord brought us together and brought us under heavy conviction of sin of our wrong attitudes of my resentment and his resentment to me and we didn't find fellowship in the gifts of the Spirit we found a fellowship again when we repented and laid our hands on the head of the Lamb I want to say this that a lot of our minor differences in the church can be resolved if we get Jesus in the centre and we repent at the cross and the Lord will look after the differences. It's the only real ground of fellowship. And the last thing I want you to say is this. It's the only real ground of victory. And all the blessings that God's got to come. Because you see, God's question is, where is the Lamb? And I say, Lord, I'm coming to Jesus. He's not on the cross now. He's on the throne of heaven. He's the Lamb in the throne. And I come to the throne of God and I submit and I repent and I ask Jesus to accept me as I am. And you cannot come to the Lamb without, by the Holy Spirit, the Lamb coming into you. And the Holy Spirit has come to produce in us the Spirit of the Lamb. He's come to form Christ in us, as Paul says in Galatians. And to form Christ is to form the nature of Christ. Paul prayed this, he said, I travel in birth till Christ be formed in you Galatians. You're so legalistic, you're so self-willed, you're so proud, you need Jesus to be formed in you. And praise God, this is what sanctification is. It is the nature of Christ being formed in us. We can't produce it, but grace can. And all through our life, God wants us to become more and more like the Lamb. That doesn't mean weak and stupid and wishy-washy. Oh no, Jesus was strong and powerful, but he was the Lamb. You cannot come to the Lamb without the Lamb coming into you. So I sum this up by saying, you may have the wood of orthodoxy, 
and you may have the fire of enthusiasm but God is saying where is the lamb and unless the lamb is there central you're going to have problems there's a fellowship where I go in England many many times I think I've been there 30 times now one of the first messages I preached when I went there was on brokenness and I mentioned about the lamb some while ago the leader rang me up and said Stanley will you come again you remember three years ago you preached to us a message on the lamb I said yes he said we've been having such problems in our fellowship I think we need more of the lamb business <laughs> come and tell us more of this lamb business so I went again and I gave a message on the lamb and God broke so many people that fellowships were restored and problems were solved and a new life came into the place. We need more of this land business.